0: To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they with their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us by a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reveler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God— Or spread out our hands to a foreign god? Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love.
1: Amen. As we continue our study of the Psalms this morning, we come today, as you just heard, to Psalm 44, which asks, but does not answer, which is curious, one of the most fundamental questions in life, which is, why do good people suffer? And I think in the question, why do good people suffer, the most important word actually is the word good. And and here's why I say that, because in my experience at least, We don't ask why bad people suffer. We don't ask why foolish people suffer. We don't ask why people who do stupid things suffer. And here's the reason for that. Typically, at least, we already know the answer to the question. In other words, we can look at the behavior and we can look at the suffering and we can draw a clear and unbroken line from one to the other. It's cause and effect. We understand why they suffer. It's when people who, at least from our perspective, don't do anything bad or foolish or stupid or at least nothing like that, that we can connect to their suffering suffer. It's when good people suffer and particularly good people who are given over to the Lord in ways that, you know, we admire. Okay, it's when they suffer that we're confused. That's when we're relegated to what I'm going to call today the land of disillusionment because it's a disillusioning place. It is a place where, in fact, we look up at the heavens and we say, Hey, God, why are these people who are good people suffering? And as Ryan made reference to, we've seen a great example of that this week with Rob and Jen Pacienza. So Rob is the senior pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Jen is his amazing and precious wife. And a week ago, Saturday, Saturday night last week, just before we came to worship the next morning, uh, they lost their three-year-old little girl. And for reasons that you can't connect the dots on. I mean, she suffered with seizures and they think that that was the cause of the death. But they went in and they found her and she was unresponsive and they called the ambulance and they came and they tried to resuscitate her, took her to the hospital where the doctor had to then tell them that she had gone home to be with her heavenly father. And that is desolating. That is absolutely crushing. It leaves you in the land of disillusionment. And the psalm here doesn't give you an answer to the why question. Now, there is an answer to the why question, and I'll give you the answer to the why question generally without all the particulars, without all the how this works its way out in our lives, which incidentally really matter. But the general answer to the question of why do good people suffer is good people suffer for God's glory. And then this next part is the most unfathomable part of the whole deal. And when you're in the land of disillusionment, you cannot get this. But just because you and I with our little finite minds can't get this doesn't mean that God with his, fi- with his infinite mind can't fathom all of its depths. We suffer, guys, for God's glory. And in the end of all end, and we go on forever, even for our own good, good that we will in the end somehow, someday, in ways that I can't explain or anticipate, see and be thankful for. a remarkable thought. But I'll tell you something, even though it's true when you're in the land of disillusionment, it feels pretty hollow, doesn't it? But not Psalm 44. Psalm 44 feels pretty helpful. And the reason I say that is because the purpose of Psalm 44 is to collect those of us up who are living in the land of disillusionment and to teach us how to live there by faith. How do you live in the land of disillusionment? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us. And doing this He's going to do it by building what I'm going to call a literary ziggurat. All right, how many of you know what a ziggurat is? Anybody? It's okay, a couple of people. All right, I hope I have a picture of it. There it is. That is a ziggurat. So let me explain. A ziggurat is a stepped pyramid. It has its roots in the earth and its uppermost chamber, which is typically painted with a blue enamel to match the sky in the heavens. And the idea is that as you stand at the foot of the, li- of the ziggurat and you look up at that upper chamber... It fades into the blue of the sky. And so in other words, you don't know where the ziggurat ends in the sky or the heavens begin. It's that which transcends heaven and earth. It connects heaven and earth. And so the idea in the ancient mindset at least is if man is going to ascend and meet with God, he would go up through the ziggurat. It's a stairway to heaven, if you will. And the God or the gods would come down and they would meet in that upper chamber. It's the place where God and man would come together. And the psalmist here, in order to teach us how to live in the land of disillusionment with his poetry, he's an artist, builds literally a ziggurat. And here's what I mean by that. There are ten lines of poetry, upon which are then built eight lines of poetry, upon which are then built six lines of poetry. Are you seeing this? Upon which are then built four lines of poetry, which contains, or which creates the upper chamber the place where the poet will meet with the Lord. And I'm honestly kind of in a hurry to get to that place in this psalm because I'm excited for you to hear what he has to say when he bursts through the door into the presence of the Lord, having ascended through his poetry to that place. And the reason that I say that is because I think that if you're living in the land of disillusionment, you're going to feel and you're going to hear what this guy has to say. And you're going to say, that guy gets me. Like that's it right there. He's going to say it and you're going to go, yes, that's how I feel. That's what I want to say. And what he asks for, last verse. Really is in the end what we need. Psalm 44 begins with this. The psalmist says to the choirmaster, master, a maskeel of the sons of Korah, and then he builds the foundation of his literary ziggurat. Ten lines of poetry, verses one through eight, speaking on behalf of the entire nation of Israel of which he is one member The psalmist says this, beginning in verse 1, he says, "Oh God, and then he says, we have what? We have heard with our ears. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, we have seen with our eyes. What they have seen with their eyes have left them confused. What they've seen with their eyes has left them mystified. What they have experienced immediately before the writing of this psalm have left them desolated. They are in the land of disillusionment. So all he can speak of is what he has heard with his ears, We have heard with our ears from whom? From our fathers, from those who have gone before us. And they have told us what deeds you performed when. In our day? Nope. They've told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And so then they've told us, for example, how you with your own hand drove out the the nations who were their enemies in their days. But them, meaning our fathers, you planted And they've told us how you afflicted the peoples, meaning the peoples of their enemies in their days. But them, our fathers, you set free. For according to our fathers, the psalmist says, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your right arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. Here's what's going on here. Israel has sent her armies out into battle to fight their enemies. And as far as they know, and the psalmist is going to call God to task on this, like He is going to prove before the Lord who will not contest it their innocence. In other words, they've done nothing bad. They've done nothing foolish. They've done nothing stupid that they can at least connect to their suffering. And here's what happens. They go out therefore thinking that God, in whose hand is both victory and defeat, is clearly going to give them victory. And instead they get defeat. Twice. Twice. In this psalm, he talks about how they are being slaughtered like sheep. It's a heavy, heavy defeat. And so these guys are what's left of their armies, come limping back home at night, bloodied and, and battered in body and in mind and in soul. And the whole nation is going, What was that? Like, where did that come from? Why is this happening? But the psalm isn't designed to tell us why, it's designed to tell us how to live when we don't know why. And he's already beginning to teach us. Lesson number one for living in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. And here's why I think that's lesson number one, because it's the first thing that we tend to doubt, isn't it? And yet the psalmist is coming to us and he's saying, hey, listen, you choose what you focus on in life all the time. And here's what you need to choose to focus on when you're suffering and it makes no sense at all. When you're in the land of disillusionment, you need to choose to focus on God's faithfulness, His past faithfulness to you. And we all have those stories. His faithfulness to your family, His faithfulness to other people in your faith community, His faithfulness to people all throughout the Bible. The history of these people that we read about in the Bible is not disconnected from us. It is connected to us. We serve the same God. We're saved by the same Savior. We're part of the same people. Their history is ours focus on that. And that's what the psalmist does. And so he begins by recounting God's faithfulness in the midst of this desolating experience. He recounts God's faithfulness to their fathers. And then he continues in verse 4 where he says that you, meaning you, O God, whose faithfulness I have chosen to to focus on in the midst of this land of disillusionment, and then I love this, he says are, and I add the word still, my king. My king. I think the most powerful thing that happened at the memorial service that they had yesterday uh, for Rob and Jen's little girl, and there were many things, but I thought the most powerful thing was that Rob and Jen themselves got up and they kind of shared their hearts for a few minutes, which was sort of a surprise. Like, I don't think anybody expected that or, or thought that they would do something like that. Uh, and they shared many different things all of them helpful but the thing that i kind of took away from it all having just seen it is i've got this image burnt in my mind and, and i think that it sort of resonates with exactly what the psalmist is saying here they're saying look this has happened this has torn us up we don't have an explanation for this but here's what all of you people need to know god is still our king he is still our king we will still serve him. That's where the psalmist is at. He says, you are still my king. And so then he says, "O oh God, please ordain. The idea being the same kind of salvation experience for Jacob, for us, for us, your people in this day that you gave to our fathers in their day. And here's why he says that. Because he realizes that the sun is going down, but that the sun is now going to go up again the next day. And then on the next day, whatever's left of the army is going to have to go back out to battle. Day after day. Day after day. Until the war is done. And he knows as well because he's heard from his fathers. He's rehearsed God's faithfulness. That it is through you, our God, that we push down our foes. And that we, if we go out in our own strength, we're going to get pushed down. And that it's through your name, the name of our God, that we tread down those who rise up against us. But if we go out in our name, yeah, we're going to get treaded down. The psalmist says, for it's not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. And he knows that because his bow and sword just failed him. But you, O God, have saved us from our foes. When? I think he means in the past and have put to shame those who hate us again in the past. And now listen to this. He says, in God, we have boasted continually, meaning even here, in our disillusionment. And we will continue to give thanks to your name forever. Even when we can't connect the dots and draw the line and and make sense of what it is that we're experiencing in this life, which if you think about it, is an amazing statement of worship. Wow, that is a costly worship that is a powerful worship. And as you work your way through the Bible, you see that kind of worship again and again and again and again and again. Paul and Silas deliver a girl who's enslaved by demons. I think that's a good thing. You know, I think we'd all go, yeah, that's, that seems like a good work. Well, here's their reward in that moment, not in eternity. That's a different reward. But as a result of that good thing, they are stripped, they are beaten, they are flogged, they are thrown into the stocks in the deepest, darkest part of the prison. And then in the deepest, darkest part of the night, what do we find them doing? Singing and praising the Lord. It's remarkable. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has this angelic announcement that completely explodes her life. She is going to lose, she thinks, and would have, but for the intervention of an, of an angel again with her betrothed Joseph, she's going to lose her engagement in her mind in that moment. She's going to lose her reputation, and she did, and that's gone. She's going to lose her sanity, at least in the eyes of everybody, because who's going to believe this? This angel comes and says, you are going to become the mother of the Son of God. That's a good thing, but it comes with suffering. She sings the Magnificat. And there's Job, of course, the most devout man on the planet in his day, who in one day loses all of his wealth, and he was a very wealthy man. He loses his health and all 10 of his children one day. Let me read you his response. It says in Job 1, beginning in verse 20, then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lesson number one for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to choose to focus on God's faithfulness, and that's our choice. Focus on that. But the second lesson is to continue to worship. It is to say before your family, before your church, before the people in this world, before yourself, as hard as this may be, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm devastated by it. And you are my king. And you will, no matter what happens, find a voice of praise in me. And so, having laid the foundation of his literary ziggurat, by means of which he's climbing up into the presence of God, he's heading for the upper chamber. He now builds the second level, eight verses or eight lines of poetry, which encompass verses nine through 16. And as we read this, I want you to notice the word you, okay? In reference to God, in verse nine, he says this, he says, but you have what? Have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil from us. You have made us, here it is, like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people, and you've sold us for what? Like what did you get in return? Nothing for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And you, O God, is the whole point, are the one who has done this to me. However, far from being discouraged by this, the psalmist is actually encouraged by this why because he knows that the one who has done it can also undo it and he knows that the one who has done it has not done it flippantly he's not he's done it for a reason even if that reason is known only to him i think one of the great ironies of life in the land of disillusionment is that people will come to you in that land and they're well intended they're they're trying to be helpful and they'll say things like, hey, you know, God really has nothing to do with, you know, what happened to you or what's happening with you. And, and that's not helpful. And that's not helpful at all. And it certainly is not biblical. Listen, if God has nothing whatsoever to do with the things that happen to us, the things that we can explain that cause us to suffer, and the things that we can't explain that cause us to suffer, then you and I are nothing more than accident victims in this life, and all the suffering that we endure in this life means absolutely nothing. However, if the things that we endure in this life come to us from the hand of a sovereign Lord who is in fact faithful and good, and who does, as we'll talk about in a minute, yet love us, whose wisdom is inscrutable, who's made us for eternity, and whose purposes that are largely invisible to us are nevertheless being worked out, then our suffering is not by accident. It's by design, and it's designed for purpose, for meaning, for mission, for things that in the end will realize we're good. So lesson number one for for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. Lesson two is to continue to worship, Lord, you are still my king. But then lesson three is to remember that God is sovereign and that as a result, he has everything to do with everything in our lives. And it all means something. So then having built his second level of this literary ziggurat by which he's ascending into the presence of God, the psalmist, now builds the third level that encompasses verses 17 through 22. And here's where he protests their innocence. This is where he says, hey, you know what? Nothing bad, nothing foolish, nothing stupid. And you, Lord, more than anyone else knows this. Beginning in verse 17, he says, all this has come upon us, all this calamity that we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And yet, you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands in worship to a foreign God, would not our God, who knows all things, discover this? For our God knows even the secrets of the heart. And yet, Notwithstanding our innocence, which you, O God, know all about, for your sake, we are what? We're going bankrupt? That's pretty devastating. We're having trouble in a really significant relationship in our life. That's very difficult. Some of us are having health problems. That's kind of a big deal. No, it's bigger than any of that. He says, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded, he says now, as a second, for the second time as sheep to be slaughtered. So there's your third level, which means that the psalmist has finally reached the upper chamber, having ascended through his poetry. And as I said at the beginning, I really want you to feel and to see this because I think you're going to go, this guy totally gets it. That's how I feel. It's what I want to say. And beyond that, what He asks for is what I need. Even though the Scriptures teach us that our God is a God who never slumbers nor sleeps, the image is that of Him busting through the door into this upper chamber and finding the God who never sleeps, okay? Asleep. Now, why is that the image? Because when you're suffering and you don't understand it, and God is not showing up and He is not delivering you, it feels like He's asleep, at least in regard to you. The psalmist gets it. He's been there. He understands. And so he bursts through the door. And in verse 23, he says what we all want to say. He shouts, awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up! And come to our help. And then he closes with this. He says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And the Hebrew word that's translated steadfast love for us is one of the most significant words in the Bible. It's the word hesed. It it speaks of the loyalty that God has to his people, which is a loyalty that is not born out of duty or obligation, but rather it's born out of the love of God for us. And that too, I think is instructive because God's love is yet another thing that we tend to doubt when we're living in the land of disillusionment. And I think the logic goes something like this: If the Lord really loved me, then He would not be doing this to me. And yet as difficult to think as this is to hear, it's actually not true. it's the opposite. It is because the Lord loves us that He afflicts us. That's hard to hear. <laughs> But I say that because you only seek to perfect, and that's the point of the affliction, that which you love. And every parent knows this. And I'm going to give you some examples that are frankly trivial compared to the kind of suffering that is actually genuine and real. But none of us come to our kids and command them to do things that we know they already want to do. You know, thou shalt sleep in every single day, right? Nobody says that, okay? I mean, you might say that to your two-year-old. You're dying for them to sleep in. I get it. But when they're 14, you know, like you don't, thou shalt sleep in every single No, thou shalt get thy rear out of thy bed, you know, because thou hast school and things to do. And are they happy about that? No. Were you happy about that? No. My mom used to literally put ice cube in my underwear strap. I'm not kidding. She really did. It's a little awkward, honestly, now that I think about it. (laughs) But it was effective in her defense. Thou shalt eat thy dessert. No, thou shalt eat thy vegetables and the rest of thy meal. And if thou satisfieth thy mother with how much thou eatest off of thy plate, thou might get a little bit of dessert. That's the way that it works. Thou shalt go out and have fun with thy friends. I want them to have fun with their friends, and they can do it after thou shalt do thy homework first. Trivial compared to losing a child. It is. And I don't mean to demean the one by using the other example, okay? But I do want to say that God puts us in the land of disillusionment, not because He doesn't love us, but because He does. And when you hear that, here's what you want to say, so I'm just going to say it for you, okay? You want to say, well, then would you please, Tom, tell the Lord to love me a little less because I'm really sick of this? Right? Have him love me less then, because I want to be out from under this. I get that. I think the psalmist gets that. He's crying out, please deliver us. Rise up. Deliver us. And yet, the Bible calls us to an imagination. It's an imagination of faith, and and you can't go there without faith. It's an imagination of another world, one that lasts forever and very much unlike this world, one that is free of suffering and one in which our suffering in this world, which is for a very limited time in comparison with eternity, will be forever rewarded and so well compensated that for the glory that will come from it, Paul says, the things that we experience in this life, even the big things, will feel momentary. They will feel small. We're not small now. And we will forever worship the Lord and praise the Lord as we come to understand why we had to suffer them. It's a remarkable, incredible thought, and in that day, we will be thankful for all of the ways the Lord has loved us, even when He expressed that love by putting us in these difficult, senseless, painful places. So what do we learn from Psalm 44? We learn, I think, first of all, that lesson one for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. What are you focusing on now? It's your choice. Lesson two is to continue to worship, to say to the Lord before any, anyone who will listen, and particularly before yourself, you are my God. You are my God and you will find a voice of praise in me. It is to remember the sovereignty of the Lord, that you're not in this alone, that you are not an accident victim, that this isn't just happened to you, and you somehow have to grit your teeth and get through it. I mean, you have to do some of that, but, but that it actually matters, even when you can't figure out how or why. And then lastly, the last lesson for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on the loyal love of God and that is a love that is written in the indelible ink of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ who suffered infinitely that he might have you and he might buy you and purchase you and make you his own and who causes you to suffer at times so that you might know him better and reflect Him better to the people around you. He is the suffering Savior. So why do good people suffer? Well, the psalm doesn't answer that. But here's what it does do. It teaches us how to suffer. It teaches us how to live in the land of disillusionment. And I, at least, think that's very helpful. Because like it or not, that's where we find ourselves at times. Okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for the sufferings of the psalmist and of the people of God as we see them again and again throughout the Bible and and other people as well. Well, We thank you because in them we can relate. We we find a brother. We find a friend. We find a a pastor. We find a preacher. We find a guide. We find a, a sage. We find an example of faith that we can learn from that you have ordained that you've inspired and that you've recorded that we might in our seasons of despair and difficulty know how to live but beyond his sufferings we thank you for the sufferings of Jesus by which we in the world we live in one day will all be made new give us faith we pray to live life in light of the things that we cannot see Let us persevere through these seasons of difficulty, O God, knowing we do that with you and knowing that in the end, for all the glory that will come, they will then, though not now,
0: seem small. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.